up. I want to ask you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 22. I feel like it's been a few weeks since I've preached to you guys, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been been a few weeks. We have Chris Cruz with us next week. He is the young adults pastor at Bethel Reading. So if you watch iBethel TV, if you've graduated from BSSM or you know Bethel and, and all of that, I promise you next week is going to be a treat to have Chris here with us. So I want you to make plans now to come back next week. You're going to hear an amazing word and bring a friend with you. It's going to be incredible. So if you're at Matthew chapter 22, just say amen. If you're, if you're not, but you're ready to read it off the screen, just say amen. amen. Here we go. Matthew chapter 22, I'm going to read verse 34 through 40. And this is uh, what the Bible calls the great commandment, right? We talked a little bit about the great commission in previous seasons, uh, but I just want to examine today the great commandment. Is that okay? Yes. Awesome. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Everybody say this with me. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So I, I want to speak to you guys today from the subject of great and first. All right. Does that sound good? Great and first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the anointing that is present here today. Lord, we've prepared to become uh, greatly impacted by your word, by your truth. So God, we ask that you would open up our hearts. Anything that would stand in the way, we ask that you destroy it right now. And that you just go to the core of who we are and transform us more into your image. Lord, we just release your love. We release your beauty. We release your design today in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Amen, amen, amen. So, um, first and foremost, I just, I want to talk a little bit about why I am talking about this passage of scripture today. I have been um, spending some time in prayer over the past couple of weeks on prayer walks because I love prayer walks. Anybody else in here like prayer walks? Um, I, I love being outside. I love breathing the fresh air. I love walking around and praying. My brain just, just works better when I'm moving. I don't know if that's the way for you guys, but I really enjoy that. And so as I've been on these prayer walks over the past few weeks, as the weather has warmed up a bit, I've been drawn to this passage of scripture and I've just been praying it over and over. Now, to be honest, I'm not a stranger to this scripture because this scripture is something that I actually pray over my kids almost every single night. So in Jewish culture, in the Old Testament, this scripture uh, that Jesus is quoting is from Deuteronomy and it's, it's known as the Shema. Everybody say the Shema. Shema. Teaching you some Hebrew today. It's called the Shema prayer, and it begins with, Hear, O Israel, right? You guys know this? The Lord our God is 
one Lord, right? And then it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. Mark actually quotes Jesus as saying, with all of your strength, right? And, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the very last thing that I do, I've been doing this with my son pretty much since the day he was born. The very last thing that he hears at night is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. And then I say, I love you, son. He said, I love you, daddy. And then he usually says something like, where's my Spider-Man? Because <laughs> he likes to sleep with all of his friends in the bed. You know, there's like 15 stuffed animals, one of which is pretty much a life-sized Spider-Man. I mean, he's just, you know, and, and my son likes that. So I'm not a stranger to the Shema. It's something that I pray often. But this has really surfaced in my spirit in the last couple of weeks. And I've been praying it. And, and I think one of the reasons why God has directed my attention to the Shema in this season is because he wants to remind me about what's actually most important. He wants to remind us as a church family, as a community, as to what is most important for us, right? Now, I'm not talking about secondarily important. I'm not talking about what's religiously important. I'm talking about what is most important in our lives, base level, foundational, before we're good parents, before we're good husbands, before we're good wives, before we're good students, before we're good businessmen, God has called us to be good lovers of him. But how often do we forget that, right? If you, if you can, you don't have to raise your hand, but I forget that sometimes. I don't know about you guys, but every now and then I forget about what is great and first in my life, how God has designed me to live, that the very first thing that I would do every day is love God, that the very last thing I would do every day is love God, that if you boiled down my life to one thing, you would see that it was to love God. Now, I think it's very easy for us to forget about this, but the Bible is so faithful. Jesus is so consistent to remind us that this is what our lives are supposed to supremely be about. If you agree with this so far, just say amen. And in fact, who you really are as a new creation, who God has designed you to be when he saved you is to be a person who loves God with the fullness of yourself. This is what we call our true selves. And what I mean by your true self, I mean your identity. I mean the new creation that you are as a result of being saved by Jesus Christ. On the inside, who you really are as a Christian desires God with everything in you, right? That is who you really are. That is your true self. But hey, could we all agree that at times it is very challenging to live from this place, right? At times it is very difficult to live from the true self, right? Who we really are, our identity. And if I, if I could define the true self, this is how I would define it. It is my real identity in Christ. 
It is who I am in loving relationship with God. Right? That's, that's what the true self is. But on the other hand, uh, there's a false self. Right? And this is what the world pushes us to live from. Our false self is our egos. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the impact, right? It's our egos. It is how we want to be perceived on the basis of our external successes. When we live from our false self, we make decisions, we live our lives, we spend our time, we do relationships on the basis of our ego and how we want people to perceive us on the basis of external successes. That is the false self. When I live from my true self, I have a great relationship with God and I put him first. Everybody say great and first. However, when I live from my false self, I put myself first and I strive to be great. You guys like that? Living from our true self can be tough. And here's why. The Lord actually spoke, spoke this to me on my prayer walk. He said, living from the true self can be challenging because the false self is very loud. It's attention grabbing. You know, it demands that you look towards it because it's doing everything in its power. It's striving and working from, for some attention because it's not finding its affection and who we've been created to be, which is to be in love with Jesus. And so we're looking for attention from external successes so that our egos can become greater and we end up living in such a way that never really satisfies who we really are. We go to church, we go through religious routine, we give in the offering, we serve on Sundays, and yet there is a sensation, if you will, of emptiness that accompanies us throughout our week because we're living from the false self looking for status, right? Rather than living from our true selves and trusting in God in intimate connection. Is this helping you guys so far? And so when we live from our false selves, I got a list of things here that I'm going to give you guys that we do when we live from our false selves, all right? When we live from our false selves, we only do what is urgent, never what's important, right? We don't do the, we don't do the important work of being obedient to God about our destiny. We only do what is urgent that makes it onto the schedule today, Right? Secondly, we live for the approval from people rather than for communion with God. Thirdly, prayer has no purpose aside for asking for things because what we really need to do is get to work. Next, we only have friends that stroke our egos and play patty cake with our pride. How's that? <laughs> right? We, we, actually, we actually can only function in environments where people acknowledge our power. We feel very uncomfortable when we get in environments where people don't recognize us as powerful, right? 
So we end up only surrounding ourselves with people who are like us, talk like us, or who validate our opinions. Is, it, is this helping? Okay. Next. We rarely experience joy because all that we do is to keep us insulated from pain. Right? Did you know that the same door you close off to any pain is the same door that you close off to any joy? You know, you try to insulate yourself. Well, I never want to experience any pain at all. I never want to have challenge. I never want to be uncomfortable or be inconvenienced. And, and when you shield yourself from challenge, you actually also, you, you can't decide what you let in and out. You know, it's like when you shield your heart, you shield your heart. You know, my wife did a great job of talking about that last week. You know, and we, we shield our heart from actual joy. And so instead of any valleys, which we're trying to protect ourselves from, we also protect ourselves from mountaintops. And I want to encourage you, open your heart to the valleys. I know sometimes it's tough. So it, it is challenging. It is hard. But did you guys know that fruit does not grow on the mountaintop? Right? It's nice that everybody sees you. It's great that you feel victorious, like you've toppled something. But the fruit grows in the valleys. It's actually in the dark places. It's when you walk through the shadow of death, right? And you're challenged. And your faith has to become real to you because the revelation that you confess has become tested. And you don't know what you really believe until it's tested. I like to say revelation is not real until it's tested, yeah. <laughs> right? Because it's easy to confess something on the mountaintop, right? But, but how do you respond when you're pressed? You know, before Jesus went to the cross, he went to Gethsemane. If you translate that in the Greek and the Aramaic, it means the oil press. You know, we're so consistently asking the Lord for more anointing, but so consistently avoiding the path of the oil press. Right? So if you want the goods, you're going to have to go through Gethsemane. Right? And the only way that you last and, and not eject is by finding your foundation in the true self and not you know, simply placating to the false self. The last thing I want to say is that when we live from our false selves, our life's design is to make us great and first in every situation. So that's how we design our life, is, to, is we design our life in such a way that causes us to feel great and first in any situation we find ourselves in. So let's, let's look at this, this scripture here. Let's look at the story of what's happening in the, in the great commandment when we hear this given by Jesus. What we have here, and if you read through Matthew chapter 22, you'll recognize that the Sadducees, which were a religious sect of Judaism, right? They had confronted and they had challenged Jesus. Now, Jesus in his wisdom had given them a response and answered all of their questions in such a way that silenced them. It shut them down. They didn't have anything else to say. They were stumped, right? And so what happen, what's happening now is that the Pharisees, another sect of Judaism, 
they've decided, well, he has silenced the Sadducees, and so now we're going to get together, and we're going to come against them, and we're going to ask them questions that are even harder than the Sadducees, and we're going to get them caught up, and we're going to prove that he's not the Messiah, that he doesn't have the wisdom from the age to come, that he's not the one that we've been looking for that's been prophesied about. Because what's happening here during this time is that these Pharisees who are now coming to Jesus are actually in conflict with the Sadducees whom he has just silenced. And so there's a fight between the two. Could I, could I call them denominations? There's a fight between the two denominations to prove who is great and first. And what they're attempting to do in proving who is great and first is to disprove Jesus. Isn't it wild how we do that? We get into religious arguments and rather than seek to be understood by simply sharing our point and connecting in relationship, we have to prove that somebody else is wrong so that we can feel great and first. But what happens in the process, instead of bringing unity, we create division. And instead of bringing love and life to our brothers and sisters who have differing perspectives, we divide, we disconnect, and then we throw stones. Right? That's what happens. And that's what's happening in this moment. That's what's happening in history because the Sadducees, they subscribe to one line of thought about the Bible, about the Torah. And then the, the Pharisees, they subscribe to a completely different line of thought about the Bible, about Torah. Now, interestingly enough, the Sadducees, they were recognized as religious liberals. However, they only confessed that the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, what we call the Torah, were the word of God. They did not receive the prophets. They denied the oral tradition of the prophets as being a part of the canon. On the other hand, which is, I think is very interesting that they were recognized as the religious liberals, but they only accepted the Torah. You would think that would be meant for the conservatives. But on the other hand, the Pharisees, they were the religious conservatives. And they not only accepted the written word, but they accepted the oral word, which was both the law and the prophets. Now, the Sadducees over here, they participated in political life. And that's why they were considered to be religious liberals. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, they did not participate in political life and they rejected philosophies. Where on the other hand, the Sadducees, they participated with philosophies because they believed that God would bless them and exalt them into the seven spheres. We have some, you know, um, messaging like this today. And then you had the Pharisees on the other hand who were incredibly conservative and resisted all of that conversation. And they said, no, no, we just need to keep up with our traditions and we need to conserve and preserve and protect the word of God and we need to be separate from the world. So recognize that this is happening. You have two parties that are in conflict. Jesus has just silenced one. So the Pharisees are like, oh man, this is great. Not only are we about to stump the so-called Messiah, but we are about to prove to this other religious sect that we are better, that our denomination is great and first. We are about to show everybody what the real word is. Get an eye full of us. I mean, how often do we do that, right? You know, just because another church worships differently than us doesn't mean they're unhealthy. <laughs> 
Just because another Christian, you know, has a differing perspective than you do on a few things doesn't mean that they're completely wrong. You know, there are two sides to every coin, but the coin has the same value. You know what I mean? There's so often we find in the Bible that there is truth, but it's held in tension and people argue over that. But God didn't mean for us to argue over it. He meant for us to connect over it, right? And share differing perspectives, but still eat together, which is what we see Jesus doing in this moment when he summarizes both the law and the prophets. What he does is he does not say, okay, I've already silenced the Sadducees. Now it's time for me to silence the Pharisees. Y'all are about to, you know, get this mic drop moment. It's about to take place because I am great and first. Instead of doing that, he actually, in some sense, unifies the two groups by saying, hey, Sadducees, you guys confess the Torah? Yes, what Deuteronomy and Leviticus says about the great commandment, that is true. Hey, Pharisees, you guys confess the prophets? Well, this is also within the great command, and that is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so what was a religious debate that was dividing the people of God, Messiah steps into the moment and unifies the people of God. If you've ever wondered how to respond to a religious debate that is heavenly, it's in a way that creates unity and does not bring more division. I feel like I'm preaching about 40% better than you are saying amen right now. I can't really tell. I thought that was a good point. Did you think that was a good point, Asa? The, the appropriate heavenly response to a religious debate is to answer, is to respond in such a way that does not continue to bring division, but unity. And instead of bringing confusion, what Christ did in the moment was he brought clarity. Now, this, this had been debated over for a long time. There were actually religious leaders who were dedicating their lives to dividing up the word of God into the, the heavy and the, and the light commandments. You know, they were dividing up the word of God into do's and do nots. And so it didn't matter how Jesus responded to this question. One group was going to catch him and they were going to argue with him and disprove his perspective. But instead of giving them that opportunity, Jesus came with such wisdom. He came with such clarity that both of them acknowledged him, not just as somebody who, you know, had something nice to say, but as somebody who spoke with authority. And that's why, they, that's why they didn't say anything. They were like, okay, that's actually the right answer. You actually just settled this debate. The answer is Jesus. Look to Jesus. What are the words of Jesus? I mean, really what God is doing here is he's giving us a recipe, uh, you know, to respond to religious debates. That's not the message. But... I just wanted to say that because I think it's important that we understand that Jesus doesn't take the bait here because he does not cause more division. He, he gives an answer that unifies. Instead of confusion, he brings clarity. Instead of adding division, he accomplishes unity. Instead of accusation, he brings authority. That's what Jesus does in this moment. Now, with the history and all that, I wanted to give you that because I'm a little bit of a low-key nerd. I'm a, I'm a secret Bible geek, all right? I know you guys don't believe that about me, but I am a sucker for a word study. I will go down a rabbit hole and spend two hours on one word, and then I resurface, and I'm like, I can't use any of this for my sermon. But 
that, so what you guys just heard was one of those rabbit trails, okay? Because I get into the history, man. I want to know. I want to know what's going on. But how does that apply to you? It's good to know the back, back story. It's good to know the history. But how does this apply to you? Well, I, I just feel like the Lord wants to remind us of a truth that in this moment of time, Jesus established, which is this. What is great and first in the kingdom of heaven is love. Right? I mean, we know that God tells us that we've received faith, hope, and love. And then he says the greatest of these is? Why is that one the greatest? Because you'll only need that one in heaven. There'll, There'll no longer be a need for faith and hope. But love will, will be everlasting. It will be eternal. And, and recognize this, is that when Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, he does not talk about love expressed as works. What he talks about first and foremost is love from the heart, which is internal, honest love. That is a love that you cannot fake. You can fake your love for someone with works. You can do a lot for them. You know, you can fake your love for God through religious exercise, but you can never fake your love for God from the heart. That is the honest love. That is the real love. That is the vulnerable love. Like, you know if you're connected to Jesus in your heart or not. You know if your love is turned on towards Jesus or not. You might be able to fool me. You might be able to fool the person sitting behind you, but you're not going to be able to fool yourself. And so Jesus says, this is the kind of love that I'm looking for. This is the great and first commandment that you would love me with all of your internal world. And this is the reason why I came. This is the most important thing for your life. And, you know, as I've spoken about the true self and the false self, can I say again that love for God from the heart is very natural for your true self. Who you really are desires God. Let's read 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Did you know that as a new creation, your most natural affection is love for your creator? Now, the false self will not lead you to believe that or to confess that or to participate in that. The false self will nag you when you get into a place of prayer and try to lure you away with Netflix, right? You know what I'm saying? Or your to-do list or the the false self will say, what is the benefit of this? What are you going to get out of this? You're not going to get anything out of this. You're not going to get anything out of prayer. Think about all those times that you prayed. You haven't seen this or that happen. You guys know what I'm talking about. Okay, so it's only me that, that when I start to pray, I start to, because a lot of times the way that we conclude that a prayer session was successful is whether or not we we're entertained. But your entertainment is not God's priority when you pray, your transformation is. You guys with me today? And listen, even if you don't feel it, exposing yourself to the presence of God transforms you on a spiritual level, right? Because the presence of God is not something that you feel. The presence of God is something that you know. You guys with me today? The Bible says, be still and that I am God. 
not be still and feel that I am God. And so when you get into this place to where you're resting from your true self and your true identity in him, then what comes forth is actually what's most natural, which is affection for the one who fashioned you. That is who you are. Can I tell you, son of God, daughter of God, who you are is deeply in love with God is deeply in love with God. If you are saved, if you're a Christian, you're a new creation and love for God is the most natural thing that will flow from your heart. Now I want to ask you a question. How is it possible that you would be able to accomplish this? How would it be possible that you would be able to accomplish what it is that God has commanded us to do? Do you guys notice there that God is not just suggesting that we love him with our whole heart, but he's actually commanding that we love him with our whole heart? Do you guys notice that? Which, which seems a little crazy, right? I mean, it's almost preposterous. You're like, how is this possible, God? How is it that you could command me to love you with all of my heart? Did you know that, that God doesn't demand what God never deposited? You know, he can command that you love him with your whole heart because he knows the love that is in your whole heart because he put it there. Because when you were saved, you got rid of a heart of stone and you received a heart of flesh. That was not just your heart reworked. That was the heart of Jesus pressed into you. So you're not loving him in your own works. You're not manufacturing love for God. You're simply receiving love from God and sharing it back with him. Now, the false self will try to convince you that you have no love for God, but the true self has enough love for God because it's not your love. You know what I mean? Like we can work so, oh man, I just want to love God. Well, you're well able to love God when you take the focus off of your works and you put the focus on the love poured out at the cross. Because when you recognize what we receive through Jesus on the cross, you recognize that you have an abundance of love to pour out at the feet of God because of the abundance of love that was poured out in you through your salvation, through the work of Jesus on the cross. See, the false self is, is what will get you caught up in religion. And the spirit of religion, no matter how much you do for God, will always tell you that you should do more. Wow. Here's what you can always know the spirit of religion by. It's when you've done everything you could do and it, and, and it says you didn't do enough. Like you can know that's the spirit of religion, right? And I find it interesting because, you know, our false self tells us we got to work more, work more, work more, work more, work more. But, you know, whenever God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, he created everything he was going to create. And then he created humanity. Why was that? Because he made sure that we would have all the resource that we would need to fulfill the assignment on our lives. Before he created us, he created the resource. He said, I'm not going to create you and let you try and meander around the planet to discover the resource that maybe I've laid out there for you. He already created it so that we would have enough to fulfill everything that he called us to accomplish. And then once he was finished creating us, the Bible says, then he took a rest. Isn't that wild that God's seventh day was actually our first day? And rather than us start with work, we start with rest. 
See, the way of the kingdom of heaven is not to look at your schedule and say, you know, how am I going to fit in some time for rest? Because the priority is my works. The way of the kingdom of heaven is, how am I going to fit in my works? Because the priority is resting. Okay, I don't know if any, I don't know how well that went over. I don't know how well that went over, actually. Because honestly, listen, that will offend your false self. It will offend your false self. Like anything that's going to press you to work harder on earning your own salvation will offend your false self. But when you rest in the fact that what you're called to accomplish has been given to you completely through the cross, then you stop trying to earn what it is that God's already done. Now, I want, to, I want you to know, because I'm closing with this. It's not that we don't do anything. It's that what we do flows out of our identity in Jesus and not out of us trying to earn something through external successes. Does that make sense? That everything we do is a natural byproduct of communion with the Holy Spirit. Not, let me try and figure out how to grab the attention of God through everything I'm doing on His behalf. But we enter into a place of communion and intimacy and prayer and connection. And from that place, we receive revelation about what we're supposed to do. You want to talk about having impact? You want to talk about leaving a legacy? That comes as we are obedient to God. Not as a result of us doing a bunch of things and then begging God to bless it. Right? Because if we simply get involved in what God is already doing, it's already blessed. Is this good? And so listen, in the last couple of weeks, I've really been taking this on because God's reminded me of it. I said, oh man, like, you know, how is that possible? How can you command that I love you, God? And, and he said, I, I said that this was the greatest command of the law. Don't forget that. I said this was the greatest command of the law. I knew that you couldn't fulfill that, which is why I did. I did. I already fulfilled that on your behalf. And, and what I've given you now is grace so that you could love me without fear of falling short, knowing that everything that is in you from me is well able to accomplish the assignment that I've given you. You, who you are in God, who you are as a Christian, who you are as a person that's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, loves Jesus. Let me read one more scripture to you guys as I'm closing. Um, oh, how, how about two more scriptures? First John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. That's how we're able to love Jesus because he's all, he first loved us. He already put it in us. It's not that we're manufacturing love. It's that we're returning love. Right? Colossians 1 and 27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Did you know that God lives in you and hopes and longs and craves the very glory of the Father? That means that as a Christian, your natural habitat is glory. Like the less time you spend in the glory, the more time you'll spend agitated. Because I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever taken a fish out of water, it doesn't, it's not that comfortable. You know what I'm saying? And your natural habitat is the presence of God. So the less time you spend in the presence of God, the more time you'll spend agitated and acquisitive and competitive and angry. Hey, 
RT Kendall, I was, I was in a, I was in a, I, I need to close, but I, I want to tell you guys this, it's important. Uh, RT Kendall said this one time. I don't know if you guys know who RT Kendall is. He's a wonderful theologian, actually lives nearby. And I was sitting in a group of pastors, probably 30 pastors there. And RT Kendall said this. He said, our spiritual lives are summed up in this prayer and Bible reading. And so it, it doesn't mean that we don't do anything. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that we, that we um, alleviate ourselves from personal responsibility because we're participants of a new covenant, which is grace and faith. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that we don't do anything and we just, well, God's done it all. I can promise you when you spend time with God, you will be motivated to work. And the reason for that is because Ephesians, what is it? Is it Ephesians 3 and 23 that says... I think I could be wrong about that. I'll look it up. I'll, I'll just pretend like it's right. And in the second service, it'll be right. Is that, you know, you've been prepared for good. You've been prepared for good. I'm try this side. You've been prepared for good in advance, right? So, so when we're in Christ Jesus, we actually work more effectively. We don't work erratically. We work with impact. If you want to have impact and you want to leave legacy, do it from intimacy, not for intimacy. Right? Because all that work you're doing to try to prove to God that you're worthy of acceptance, he's already finished that on the cross. If you just recognize that you've already been accepted and work from that place, your work will have impact. And you'll be satisfied and you'll be fulfilled and you'll be blessed and finances won't be a problem. Because God has never seen his seed begging bread. Right? He's never seen his seed begging bread. Right? And, and so here, here's something that we do. Here's something that we give ourselves to. Prayer and Bible reading. Will you guys repeat this with me, please? Prayer and Bible reading. Here... And, and can I throw a third one in? Is it okay if I throw a third one in? I, I don't know if you're going to like it. Uh, fasting. Yikes. Yee. <laughs> right? But here's what, here's what I'm feeling from the Lord is, is this, is that this is a season. It's, it's a season of time of consecration for our family. And it's where we're focusing a bit more on being before doing now listen guys you're probably not going to meet too many uh people that that want to do more than me i mean i'm telling you i wake up my brain's going a mile a minute of all the things i want to do i I go to i can't sleep at night because i'm thinking about how do we impact japan i'm like and then my pastors come in like banning and he's like you you need to worry about how to impact east nashville you know what i mean so I want you to know, I, I'm not somebody that advocates for, we're not going to do anything. I want to do a whole lot, but doing things is not great in first. Right? That's not great in first. Love from here for God is great in first. And if you skip over this and you don't have this, you'll do a whole lot. You may even accomplish things. You may even become famous, but you won't have a lot of joy. You know what I mean? And you'll be working your butt off to stay famous because your identity is so invested in that fame and you won't know who you are apart from the attention. 
right? But if you just recognize you already have the attention of God, your love tank will be so full that the, the other people you have the attention of, they'll feel love instead of your thirst. Dang. 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 People feel that thirst. That's why they unfollow you. Anyway. So... But if you love them, they'll recognize that, that, that you have something to share. Right? And that's legacy. So let's stand up. I just want to say this one passage of Scripture over you as we're closing. I, I've, I've said it already, but it, it goes like this. Be still and know that I am God. Let's all say that together. Be still and know that I am God. Just put your hand on your heart. Say it one more time. Be still and know that I am God. Now we're going to shorten it. Be still and know. Just say that over yourself. Be still and know. We're going to shorten it one more time. Be still. Yeah. Just speak that over yourself. Be still. Let's shorten it one more time. Be Hey, you know, before Jesus did anything, the father said, I'm well pleased with you. Before he raised anybody from the dead, the father said, I'm well pleased with you. Before he, you know, preached a crusade, he said, I'm well pleased with you. Before he ever, you know, officially made any disciples, the father said, man, I'm so pleased with you because you're my boy. Because you're my boy. You're my son. Man, I'm well pleased with you. You know, my son didn't have to do anything for me to be proud of him. He just came out. <laughs> and that wasn't even on his own effort. That was on behalf of his mamas. Right? You know, you are who you are because somebody loved you. In Jesus' name, you are dismissed. Amen.